0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Millennial Learns. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, I think you're going to like the episode this week. It's a quick kind of synopsis of the seven books of the Catholic Bible uh, that Protestants don't have. and I had no idea what I was missing when I was growing up with the Protestant version. Now, I say this a bunch in the episode, but basically, this week, we're going to focus on what my original question was, which what are in those seven books and kind of why are they in there? Um, but it led me to so many other questions about how the Bible was assembled, why a lot of different Christian traditions accept different numbers of books in their Bible. Um, so it started out as just one little topic of Catholics and Protestants and their Bible differences, but it led to a huge question for me about how the Bible was assembled and how you know it's divinely inspired and all of that stuff, why the canon was originally accepted. And so we're going to have like a part two of this next week with all those more general questions. But this week is just your basic Catholic versus Protestant uh, Bible look. So um, before we do that, we're going to do our little five minutes of fun. And today, since this is going to be released the day after the Super Bowl, uh, I'm gonna do a Super Bowl trivia quiz, so it'll be a little outdated, but but it's okay. Uh, I think I'm probably not gonna get any of these right because I don't really pay attention that much. Like I like sports, and I loved when the Broncos were one two Super Bowls back to back because Peyton Manning was the best. Um, but these seem to be more like general Super Bowl trivia questions, which I probably won't be that good at. Um, normally I hate BuzzFeed, but they do have an easy, or like, they do have a Super Bowl (laughs) quiz, so I'm going to be using that. So the first question is, what is the biggest age gap between two Super Bowl QBs? Ugh. The answers range from 10 years to 17 years, and I feel like it's going to be on the old end. Or no, sorry, it's 10 years to 18 years. I feel like it's going to be on the old end, uh, just because I do think that there was like a really old quarterback and maybe that was Peyton Manning. Actually, I'm gonna say 17 years. Oh, I was wrong. It was 18 years. So, oh, okay. This year's Super Bowl featured the biggest age gap between two quarterbacks. Tom Brady is 43, and Patrick Mahomes is 25. Oh, oh, I thought it meant between two different Super Bowls, like someone who's 23 is the youngest to ever go to a Super Bowl, and someone who's like 50 is the oldest. But this means within the same game, so apparently 18 years is the answer. Okay, next question is, what is the biggest outright upset in Super Bowl history? Oh, I'm never going to know this one. One of them was Patriots beating the Rams, Jets beating the Colts, Giants beating the Patriots, and Chiefs beating the Vikings. I don't know. I'm going to guess and say the Chiefs. No, I'm going to say the Giants beating the Patriots because I feel like the Patriots, that was Super Bowl 42, which wasn't that long ago, and I feel like the Patriots have been favored since then. So I'm going to say that. Oh, I was wrong. Okay. It was the Jets beat the Colts. Um, Joe Namath's famous guarantee came to fruition as the Jets walked in 18-point underdogs and came out and walked out as champions. Okay, so 18-point underdogs. Wow, that's kind of impressive, actually. That's a lot of points. Uh, okay, who is the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl? The answers are Doug, Will- or the options are Doug Williams, Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, or Donovan McNabb. I don't think Patrick Mahomes has won one yet because he's young, I think. I don't know who Doug Williams is, and I have only heard of Donovan McNabb, like, rarely, but I think Russell Wilson won one as a Seahawks quarterback, Oh, and I was wrong again. Okay, I'm not doing well. It was Doug Mc- Doug Williams. Uh, this says, McNabb never won a big game while Wilson and Mahomes both cl- can claim a Super Bowl victory. Williams was the first to do it in 1988. Oh, so I was wrong on many fronts here. Mahomes and Russell Wilson have both won a Super Bowl victory, but McNabb was the first one. Okay, interesting. True or false. This year's Super Bowl will be the first time a team has gotten to play in their home stadium. That seems really unlikely that that would be true, that this is the first time there's been like over 50, but maybe, I mean, maybe that wouldn't be a question unless it was true. So I'm gonna say true. True. Wow, that's interesting. The Bucks beat the Packers to advance to the Super Bowl, which is being held at their home stadium. The closest a team has come recently was the Vikings in 2018. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, oh, there's more questions. So how many NFL teams have not won a Super Bowl The answers are from like six to thirteen. I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say ten teams have not won a Super Bowl. Oh, wrong. Oh, so the answer is twelve. I said ten, the correct answer was twelve. So this says nearly half the league has not won a big game. Or has not won the big game, while teams like the Patriots and Steelers have won six. Interesting. So 12 teams have not won. Which team has the most consecutive Super Bowl appearances without a win? So the options are Cleveland Browns, Minnesota Vikings, Los Angeles Chargers, and Buffalo Bills. And that's funny because the Cleveland Browns, like for a long time, they didn't even win a game. And that was kind of recent, I think. Um, I don't, I'm not going to know this one. I have a feeling it's between the Bills and the Vikings. So I guess I'm just going to go the Bills. I was right. While both Buffalo and Minnesota have gone to Super Bowl and lost four times, the Bills did it four times in a row. That would suck to be a Bills fan and go four times in a row and then not win. Oh, I feel bad. I hope they won one after that. Uh, okay. Which Super Bowl matchup famously went through a 34-minute power outage after Beyonce's halftime performance, gaining the nickname the Blackout Bowl? This one I watched because the Broncos were in it, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so one of the options is Super Bowl Forty Eight, which is Seahawks versus Broncos, and I know that that one's not it because I was on a dance team when that was happening, and we watched it in Disney World because we we had to be at nationals. Um, So I know it wasn't that one. I have a feel. I think it's I think it's Super Bowl Fifty, Panthers versus Broncos, because that's the one that we won. Oh, I was wrong. Oh, it wasn't with the Broncos. The right answer is Super Bowl 47, 49ers versus Ravens. I must have just been watching just randomly, but I do remember her halftime show. So um, it says this Super Bowl was also the first one in which two brothers coached opposing teams, uh, Jim and John Harbaugh. So that's a fun fact. Next question is who has the most Super Bowl MVPs, Terry Bradshaw, Bart Starr, Tom Brady, or Joe Montana? I thought it was Terry Bradshaw. So I'm going to say him. Oh, wrong. Tom Brady. Brady has four MVPs under his belt and looking for his fifth. Okay, and this would be his seventh Super Bowl win, which is very impressive. All right, which Super Bowl had the highest attendance? I'm not going to know this at all. This seems very random. One of the options is Super Bowl 45, Packers versus Steelers, and that seems pretty popular. Oh, and I'm wrong again. (laughs) Okay, it was Rams versus Steelers in Super Bowl 45. in case anyone wants to know. And I think this is the last question. True or false? There has never been a Super Bowl MVP on a losing team. I thought that, that uh, again, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. Oh, and I'm wrong. Okay, <laughs> of course, because in this one I got every single one wrong almost. Uh, okay, Chuck Howley has the honor of being known as the only man to win the Super Bowl MVP on a losing team when his Dallas Cowboys lost to the Baltimore Colts. He also became the first defensive player to win the Super Bowl MVP. Wow, that's kind of interesting. I would love to know his stats in that game because that is really impressive like not even winning and being the mvp and so anyway it said uh the summary of this one is it says i fumbled on this one so it says i scored better than 5% of quiz takers which means 5% got either zero or one so i'm pretty much near the bottom and uh yeah so it's clear to say that i do not know that much about football but i'm very passionate about it you know during the super bowl i'll pick a team and i'll go to the end with that team on that super bowl day plus some of the best memories ever were when the Broncos won two Super Bowls in a row. We went out and got our Super Bowl champion shirts immediately after the game. They printed the shirts immediately and we went to sports authority and bought them. So great memories on Super Bowl Sunday. I hope everyone at this point has had a great Super Bowl Sunday and we're going to get on with the rest of the podcast. I hope you guys learn a lot about the Bible and stay tuned for next week about my to learn about all my follow-up questions um, that were presented from this episode. So let's get into it. Also, as a quick addendum to this five minutes of fun, I'm going to go ahead and make my Super Bowl prediction. I'm going with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers because I love Tom Brady and I think he is an amazing football player. So I'm not invested in either team. I just think he's going to really pull it through for them. So we'll see if I'm right. Go Buccaneers. Okay, now we can go to the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Happy Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to today's podcast. Welcome back to A Millennial Learns. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're talking about why Catholics have an extra seven books in the Bible, Uh, and this one is is pretty interesting. So this one was like pulling a little thread and having everything kind of unravel where my original question was just why do Catholics have that other seven books that Protestants don't have? And it led me on this very large, uh, it led me to like a million more questions basically. So this week, since it was my original question, we're going to focus on what's in those extra seven books and why the Protestants don't include them. But then I think next week we're going to go into... Really, a full deep dive about how the Bible was assembled because it does help with other questions that this episode will lead to. For example, the Greek Orthodox have even more books than Catholics do. Um, you know, Mormons obviously have like another book called the Book of Mormon. So, basically, how the Bible is assembled and why it was assembled and what are the criteria for it being in the biblical canon is something that this episode led me to research. So we're going to go over that next week. This week, again, since it was the original question, we're just going to dive into the Catholic seven books uh, and see what's included in them and why Protestants don't accept them, just at least at a very basic level before next week. So um, I'll go over my original thoughts for these books. Basically, I didn't really know anything about it. So I grew up going to Catholic mass, but also a little bit of Protestant uh, mixed in there. And so I think I knew in the back of my mind that the Catholic Bible was a little bit different than the Protestant Bible, but I didn't know it was like full extra books or how those books differed or anything like that. So I was kind of going in blind and really this question came up during the quiz I did in the first episode um, about how many books you think there are in the Bible. So I said 66 because I know that that's the Protestant number and that's kind of what I had always heard, but I at that point was kind of aware that Catholics accepted 73. So I really didn't have a huge background on this going in, uh, which made it even more interesting to research, honestly. So um, yeah, so I'll go into the research right now. So I'm going to go into what each book uh, contains and kind of what they're all about. So there are seven books, like I mentioned, the list of them is the book of Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, First and Second Maccabees, and the Book of Wisdom. Uh, And it apparently also has some additions to the stories of Esther and Daniel. There's like extended versions in there. So we'll start with Tobit. So um, I looked all the summaries up on Britannica's website. It has very good summaries and details about like, when they were written, who they were written by and what the purpose of them were, and kind of the the story in each book. So I got all of these summaries from Britannica, um, which I'll link in the in the show notes, you can go look at those. Uh, but basically, the Book of Tobit is they call it a religious folktale. So it tells the story of a man named Tobit. He was a very devout Jew who had been exiled to Nineveh, which is in Assyria. So he did a lot of good works, things like giving alms, which is like giving to the poor and burying of the dead. Um, But he was struck blind, kind of, it sounds like from kind of an unknown reason. Then in conjunction with Tobit's story, there's another character named Sarah, who is the daughter of Tobit's closest Relative, So you're following these stories simultaneously. And Sarah, um, also has kind of bad luck of her own. She has been married seven times, but every wedding night, the, her husband, uh, is struck dead by a demon. So he's killed each one of her seven husbands on the night of their wedding. Um, so both of them are praying for deliverance for God, uh, for deliverance from God. So God sends an angel named Raphael as an intercessor for both of them. And as the story goes in Tobit, Tobit has money uh, in a faraway city. And so he sends his son Tobias on a venture, on an adventure to go get that money. Uh, That town is called Media and Sarah lives in Media. So Tobit... Tobit sends his son Tobias to Media to go get that. On the way, he's bathing in a river and he's attacked by a fish. Raphael is there as the angel intercessor um, who's like making the journey with Tobias. And uh, he tells Tobias to save the innards, the, the like, guts of the fish as medicine. So Tobias gets to Media, he, he ends up meeting Sarah and wants to get married and the fish innards that he got before um, help stop the demon so he doesn't die on the wedding night. They then go back to Nineveh where Tobit is, and the fish gall cures Tobit's blindness. Um, and then the book closes with Tobit giving a song of Thanksgiving. So the basically the main message of this book is talking about how people can be like unfairly or, you know, unaccountably afflicted by bad things, but their faith is rewarded in the end and it all turned out good and with a song of thanksgiving. Okay. So that's the book of Tobit. The next book is the book of Judith, which basically tells a story. It's like a wartime story, which, so it, it follows that the king of Assyria um, sent a general named Holofernes to conquer Palestine. And the specific city that they were going to conquer is called Bethulia, which is where Judith lives. So that was under siege. Judith is... They described her as a beautiful widow, um, and like I said, she lived in Bethulia. So when it was sieged she left the city and pretended to basically give up, and went and told the general Hall of Ferns, which I don't think I'm pronouncing correctly, <laughs> but she went and told him that they would win and conquer the city. Um, and by the way, the general Hall of Ferns had had a like a warning, basically, by someone else in the army about like don't attack the jews because i'm assuming because of god's like protection um so anyway he did anyways and he sieged the city so she left pretended to give up went to talk to hall of ferns and basically said oh yeah you're definitely gonna win so she was then invited into his tent and got him drunk and then when he was sleeping in his like drunken stupor she cut off his head put it in a bag and brought it back to bethulia so the Assyrians who were the ones attacking them and sieging the city now had no leader. And so then the Jews were able to win because they were leaderless. Um, This one is so Britannica and I've seen multiple sources on this and I'll uh, try to link all of the ones that I saw about this, but they say that this book is pretty suspect uh, just because of the historical details and chronological errors. It covers. A pretty wide range of geographical or not geographical of like historical periods it, it pulls a lot of things from different eras and so um they seem historians seem to think that the chronologic uh the chronology i guess is off with the writings of judith So some say it's just pure fiction, um, and it was written to encourage the Jews that were in Judea during the period following these wars. There was like an uneasy period, so they think it might just be fiction. Other people think it's more of like almost a parable, um, but and it's basically the message is to show how God works through people, not just like divine beings. So uh, this one's kind of debated historically, it sounds like. Okay, the next book is the Book of Baruch. I think that's right it's b-a-r-u-c-h so it's baruch or baruch um so this one was written five years after the babylonians destroyed jerusalem there are different sections in this book one starts with a prayer that's basically a confession of the sins of jerusalem and then there's another one that talks about wisdom how god is universal wisdom and then how he gave wisdom to men through the judaic law and then there's a section of poems of lamentation and consolation, where it basically describes Jerusalem as a widow that weeps for her children and said that God comforts the Jews. So that one's a lot shorter, but it's a little letter um, that basically, yeah, says the sins and praises wisdom. Uh, The next book is Sirach, which is also called the Book of Ecclesiasticus. Um, This one is very similar to like Proverbs, it sounds like. So it presents a lot of moral rules, corrections for people, um, just snippets of wisdom, basically. It personifies wisdom as a woman, as Lady Wisdom, which is pretty common in Proverbs if you go through, like, Lady Wisdom's on a street corner. Um, sounds like it kind of does the same thing with that. Um, this is the only one of these books where the author is for sure known. Uh, it was written by a guy named Ben Sirach, which is why it's called Sirach or Sirach. Um, And his grandson actually carried the book to Alexandria to get it translated in Greek um, a little bit after he wrote it. So um, that one is known and it's pretty similar to like Proverbs. And then Maccabees, this one was, these are the most confusing ones to me because, so when I look it up, there's two books of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees that are accepted into the Catholic canon. So in the Roman Catholic canon. But there's actually four books of Maccabees, so only the first two are accepted. Um, so First Maccabees is an account, well, okay, I'll back up. Both of these books are basically historical accounts. First Maccabees is an account from the events of Antiochus the Fourth. I don't know. Um, so there's like a period that it's from. So it's from Antiochus the fourth epiphans of Syria to the death of the high priest in Jerusalem. It talks about the refusal of the high priest to perform like pagan religious rites and says the Jewish or, and uh, outlines the Jewish revolt against the Syrians and Judea's independence. So it's, they said it's the Britannica said it's the, only contemporary account of the civil wars that happened in Judea, and it's been basically cross-referenced by a ton of historians that all take it as pretty much fact, like a great historical record. So unlike Judith, this one is pretty solid on historical grounds. Um, And then Second Maccabees is another historical account, which focuses more on the Jewish revolt against Antiochus and shows how Judas Maccabeus... (laughs) I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these right, but um, how he defeated this Syrian general. So it sounds like both of the uh, books of Maccabees are historical accounts of like Jewish wars uh, just split into two essentially. And then the third and fourth book, the third one seemed relatively unrelated. And the fourth one was kind of like a more vague historical account. So I'll probably go into more those more as to why they're not included, even in the Roman Catholic Canon uh, next week when we go over the assembling of the Bible. And then the last book that is in the Catholic Bible that is not in the Protestant Bible is the Book of Wisdom, and it's also known as the Wisdom of Solomon. So this is another book of wisdom uh, in the wisdom section of the Bible, which is also similar to Proverbs. It also personifies wisdom as a woman, and it really encourages introspection. Um, So this was They think it was used as a defense of Judaism during this time period that it was written because the doctrines were described in terms of Hellenistic philosophy, which is kind of the surrounding philosophy that everyone that was not a Jew used. And so it showed that those truths of philosophy in their surrounding culture were applicable to the Jewish concept of God. So, again, this can be broken up into three different sections. One talks about the enthusiasm you should have, I guess, for religious practices. One is praising wisdom, which is, again, similar to the other two we talked about Proverbs and Sirach. And one of them, and then another section is talking about how wisdom guided all of Israelite history and talks about the condemnation of any idols. So the other two big differences between the Catholic version of the Bible and the Protestant version of the Bible is the stories of Esther and Daniel. Um, So it wasn't full books that were added, but there are extra chapters in the Catholic version that, that are not in the Protestant version. So like it said, this website that I found, which is called our element.org, it's like a Christian or it's a Protestant website. Um, so just keep that in mind as I read this. But um, basically, it says for Esther, there's an additional six chapters at the end of Esther. Now, originally, the extra verses in those chapters were interspersed throughout the book of Esther um, in the Septuagint, but the early church father, they call him, which is St. Jerome. When he translated it, he put them all at the end um, in his translation because it wasn't addition, or because those chapters weren't present in the original Hebrew text. So he put them at the end, which is chapters 10, Four through sixteen twenty-four. So that's the the section that's new. So some modern Catholic Bibles now put the those verses in order and intersperse them as they were in the Septuagint. Yeah, originally they were just all at the end in the original translation so those extra chapters include a couple prayers to god and this website says perhaps because it felt that the above mentioned lack of mention of god was inappropriate in a holy book again this is taken from a protestant perspective so they obviously think the catholics edition was wrong so but it sounds like the editions changed the tone of the book and made it sound more like the Jews were saved from the destruction that they were gonna go through in Esther because they were so pious and like devout essentially so yeah that was added in after um, the original book was written then the additions to Daniel are also pretty interesting they seem a little bit more um, brought like a little bit more involved there's a lot of additions so again, there's extra chapters in Daniel and there's three kind of stories or additions that are in the book. So one of them is called the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three holy children. And this is an expansion on the story of three Jewish boys getting thrown into a fire because they wouldn't really, uh, they wouldn't worship idols. And so there's uh, a prayer basically that's um, additional in there describing what they prayed. Then there's another song, or then there's another section called Susanna and the Elders, which is again after where the normal Protestant Bible ends. So Susanna and the Elders basically they were trying to blackmail her into having sex, and Daniel stood up to the Elders and had them like put to death and tried. Basically, there's a lot more to that story, but that's the very quick synopsis. And then there's another section called Bell and the Dragon, which um, Daniel or the whole town or village or whatever was worshiping this idol called Bell. And he had to prove that Bell was not eating the food that it was offered every night, which was a statue. The rest of the townspeople were were eating the food and sneaking in. And so they tried to kind of like set him up and he laid ash on the floor and showed that there were footprints and it wasn't Bell eating it. And then um, the kind of follow-up to that was that he was then ordered to worship an actual dragon, and so he had to kill the dragon with his own two hands, and so he poisoned it and proved that that wasn't um, a god or worthy of, of worship. And then the last part of that is that there's another time when he gets thrown into a lion's den, and this time it's by Cyrus, not Darius. So he gets actually according to this, thrown into a lion's pit twice, so he has terrible luck, Um, but the lions don't eat him again, and so yeah, those are the other editions, not full books, but additions to already existing books, and those are just tagged onto the end in most translations. These are the only two editions right now that I feel kind of weird about, like I'm not sure if they should be in uh, the Bible. We'll get into why the other books were taken out or Um, why there were extra ones in the Catholic version. But this one seems like the entire book was written. They're talking about a historical event. And then hundreds of years later, someone just tried to add to that story. So that seems a little bit odd. And that's where I'm kind of uh, iffy, I would say about the additions to Esther and Daniel. But uh, again, Part of this should be answered next week when we go through how it was assembled and what the, I guess, what the requirements are for putting additions into a book of the Bible. So I'm not sure I'm completely against it yet, but this is the one that strikes me as weird. So the question now is why are these books not included in the Protestant Bible when they are in the Catholic Bible, and you will get very different answers, which is why this kind of all unraveled and led to so many other questions, because you hear a lot of different answers based on who you ask, which I'm sure is going to be like a lot of these podcasts. But um, I started my research just by talking to one of my Catholic friends, and she said that she learned that Martin Luther just threw out the seven books because it didn't fit the narrative that he wanted to push during the Reformation during the Protestant Reformation that they either focused too much on works or purgatory or something. Um, And so he threw them out. I did find a Catholic website that seemed to confirm that theory, where they said that there was some debate about purgatory between Martin Luther and a Catholic. And someone quoted a verse in Maccabees that said, basically trying to prove that purgatory existed. And so Martin Luther came back, X amount of time later and said, oh, well, Maccabees doesn't even count. It's not in the historical canon, so we don't even use Maccabees. And at that point, it got thrown out. Now, okay, so that seemed to to confirm that. But then a Protestant website, um, which again, I'll, I'll link all this. Um, a Protestant website said that Protestants just simply never took these to be divinely inspired because they were not part of the original Jewish canon. So, I'll back up a little bit. So the Jewish canon, you know, once I heard that, I wanted to look up what the original Jewish canon was. So the Hebrew Bible has 24 books, which is the Old Testament. The canon, this canon, which is the canon they were referring to on that Protestant site, was confirmed in AD 90 and 118. So between those two times, the Protestant Old Testament has 39 books, but it's identical other than some of the books being split up. So Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is just one book, but in the Protestant book, it's like first and second Samuel. So they're identical, but one has 24 books and one has 39 books just because of like an organizational difference. So the seven additional books used by Catholics are included in something called a Septuagint, which which is a Greek translation of a different Hebrew canon. So early church leaders who could only read Greek sometimes quoted these as scripture. And there was a debate about if they were actually scripture or if they were not kind of continued through the middle ages, this one said. And this is on um, the website Christianity Today. That's where I'm finding this new history about the the, uh, historical Jewish canon. So we both use, everyone uses the same exact New Testament books, those were are pretty much not a debate, but it's the Old Testament books that that are a debate. So at one point there was a saint named Saint Jerome who translated the entire Bible to Latin and he translated the Hebrew and the New Testament like the Hebrew Old Testament and the New Testament and then later translated the Greek Septuagint into, latin as well but he made a note that they were not a part of the original biblical canon so pretty soon though his latin version kind of was picked up by other translators and it sounds like they just dropped the um preface that he had that the um the septuagint was not actually part of um the the biblical canon and so with that preface dropped, it was considered equal authority for a long time, but it sounded like it was never his intent. Um, During the Protestant Reformation, then a new emphasis was placed on the importance of Hebrew, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Hebrew language. And so they then rejected the Greek additions and just stuck with the original Hebrew Old Testament. Now, I guess what I'm going to have to research for next week is why they did that, like why they cared about why it was the original Hebrew and the Hebrew language versus the Greek. I think it has to do with the fact that they think the Bible, you know, the Bible is said to be divinely inspired. And I think it's because uh, I think they reject the Septuagint books because if it's divinely inspired, it would be in Hebrew originally. Um, and since they were putting a new emphasis on Hebrew, I'm guessing since it wasn't in Hebrew, they thought it wasn't divinely inspired. And so they rejected it. Then another Catholic source I found actually did mention that St. Jerome, even though he had that preface of, um, saying that those were not of equal authority as the rest of the Bible, he later in his life turned back and said that they were. So that's also pretty confusing, and that's why Catholics accept that, because he even he then said, yes, these are divinely inspired, and they should be on equal ground. I'm going to go into kind of my final thoughts on this. Uh, Clearly, there's, I think there are a lot of questions as to why the versions are actually different. If you talk to a Catholic, they'll probably be like, hey, Martin Luther threw these out. But if you talk to a Protestant, it's like, well, we never... Like they were never divinely inspired and they were never part of the original Hebrew, and we just went with the original Hebrew. So, like all things, there's two sides of the story, and it seems like each side is kind of sticking to their, like the other side is wrong. I have read some of each book, and they seem really wise, especially like those Book of Wisdom um, books. Well, Book of Wisdom and Sirach, I read some of those, or Sirach. Ciroc is like alcohol, I think. Um, But they seem like they have really good things to say. So I do think that it would probably be good to read them. I have a plan to read them, you know, cover to cover all the ones that are not in the Protestant Bible. But I think in order to fully decide for myself if I think they should be in the Bible or in the Protestant book, or if I should be reading the Catholic version of the Bible, I think I do need to look more into how the entire Bible was put together because this opens up a lot of questions about why things were put in the Bible, how you know something was divinely inspired. Is it just the language that it comes down in or, um, yeah, like what are the criteria for putting something in the Bible? Because I've always been really curious, and this is a little bit off topic, but I've always been curious as to why the... Mormon, like why Mormons have another book, because a lot of people have just explained to me why that's wrong, because the Bible said, do not add, you know, do not add anything to the words of God. There's like a verse that that says something similar, but at some point you had to assemble the Bible. And I don't think God just stopped talking to us after the Bible was assembled. So it's not like there's never any more wisdom that God will bestow upon us. So why um, shouldn't more books be added? Now, I do think there's some things in the Book of Mormon, if I'm understanding it right, that kind of contradict the um, Old Testament or the New Testament, like the the Bible that's assembled. So that's kind of enough reason for me. Uh, but yeah, it just doesn't make any sense why, really why things are put in the Bible and why some are rejected. So that is going to be the focus of next week. And I think it'll help me answer more about why the Book of Mormon should or should not be paid attention to. Um, but again, we're going to do a whole podcast on the Book of Mormon, what they, what, they, where it came from, you know, and how it applies to the Mormon faith today. Um, but the other thing that that should open up is why Greek Orthodox people, why people that follow Greek Orthodoxy also use more books, even than the Catholic version. So again, this led to a whole chain of questions for me. Um, but next week will be the week that we get more into all of these broader questions outside of just the Catholic books as to what the criteria were to put a book in the Bible, why you, uh, people think that it is divinely inspired, um, and why some books they think are not divinely inspired. So that's about all for this week's episode. Just a quick synopsis of the seven books of the Bible that Catholics have that Protestants do not have. Um, Right now, I don't really see a reason to not read it or to have it not included. But again, that will be more answered, I hope, by the end of next week um, to figure out why things are included in the Bible anyway. So um, I am going to take a read and see where that takes me. Uh, If you're Catholic, feel free, please DM me about which one of these seven books is your favorite or a favorite verse or anything like that, Um, or any resources you have about why this should be included in the Bible. Um, It would be a really interesting mix of beliefs if I was like, yeah, I'm completely Protestant, except I include the seven, seven books of the Catholic Bible. So we'll see where I end up on it after next week. Um, but so far I'm leaning to like, they seem like pretty good books from what I've read so far. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of A Millennial Learns. I have loved doing this podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. And uh, again, DM me with any like topics that you want to hear about or anything that you're curious about. I also want to start having guests on. So if you uh, know of a guest that you would like to see on that really is interested in either a faith or political topic, then let me know. Um, Thanks everyone. And I'll see you next week. Bye. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our Millennial Learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a Millennial Learns. Go check me out, follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.